This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. I grew up in Weymouth, Massachusetts many moons ago, specifically South Weymouth, Massachusetts. Weymouth being a big town even then, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, large in both size and population. A mere 17 miles from Boston on the south shore of Massachusetts, in those days it felt light years away. Hard to believe now as it is truly a bedroom community, but back then the Grange Hall just down the street from our house, the square dancing lessons my sisters took at Kramer's Hayloft, and the homemade ice cream from Welcome Farm were signposts indicating just how far we were from the bright lights of the big city. And of course every summer there was the Weymouth Fair. Even just saying those words now brings back fond memories. It wasn't just the fair itself, with its midway full of carny games, the ribbon candy prize you enjoyed, and the rides on which you gave the candy back. It was the anticipation leading up to the fair. Just down the street from our house, no more than a mile away, an easy bike ride or walk with you and your friends, the rides, booths, and various attractions would begin showing up in the week or so before the fair officially commenced. And the owners of those rides, booths, and attractions needed labor cheap labor, to help set up for the crowds that descended for the fair's annual two-week run. So, for the princely sum of a quarter or fifty cents, an enterprising young man could help set up a booth, work on putting together a ride, just think about how cheaply your so-called safety was purchased, or muck out the stalls for the horses. Strung together, that young man could then splurge to his heart's delight on the glittering, shiny objects of the midway. Or, If that same young man had an older brother, he could, perhaps, look to increase that vast bankroll via an investment in the fair's other attraction, the horse races. The Weymouth Fair was part of a fair racing circuit back in those days that encompassed nearby locales in Marshfield and Brockton, but also spread to the western part of the state, to Northampton and Great Barrington. Those days and those times are long gone, of course, but we are all about history, handicapping, and humor here at Can Do. And fair racing had all three all wrapped up in an environment that few would recognize today, people with some memorable characters, some of whom were involved in elaborate and not-so-elaborate chicanery, situated inside a county fair atmosphere that may not always have been fair, but was always authentic. I shared a lot of laughs with Michael Anderson, Mike Mazinski, Michael Blowen, and Bill Finley as I recorded the interviews for this segment, but I think you will detect from all of us more than a note of wistfulness as we recall those bygone days. It's going to sound odd to say this, but in an environment that was rife with chicanery, there was something very unique, dare I say authentic, about racing on the fair circuit. It had its own kind of unique community environment, uh, small town kind of environment, I guess, too. uh, But but I think you touched on something. It was... was, uh, uh, it was authentic, I, I would say, in its own way, which is kind of maybe kind of a weird word to use about fair racing, but it was authentic in its own way. Well, that's if, if you, uh, it is a weird word to use because at least a third of the races were fixed. 
Yeah, you know, that, that is a valid point. And uh, look, you know, I, 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 uh, I never once grumbled about it. I, I, I assume that most people would listen to this and think this guy's crazy. He said how much fun it was to watch six races all the time. Well, it had to have been there. It really was fun. And it really was part of the handicapping process. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it was just something that made the fairs so crazy that they were lovable. As I discussed with Bill Finley, authentic is an interesting word to use about fair racing. I asked Michael Blowen about it. For all the chicanery that went on, it was an authentic environment, too, um, I think. Anyway, that I That is true. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, there, was, there was no artifice. Let's put it that way, I guess. Yeah, there's no pretensions about being in the fairs. By this time, everybody was at the bottom of the barrel together, and that was it. And the horses are at the bottom of the barrel. Most of the people are at the bottom of the barrel. But uh, but they were rejoicing in the fact that they had, you know, there's no more pretense anymore. We can do whatever we want. And, and that's when they start telling you the real stories. And that's what made it so much fun as a journalist because they, would, they had nothing left to lose. So they weren't hiding anything. And they would tell you these stories that were, that were self-deprecating and true. I think one of the main things about fair racing that made it feel so authentic was that sense of we are all in this together, wherever I would add that we may be. Michael Blowen made the point that those on the fair circuit were riding at different points on the curve of life. Everybody was a misfit in some way, including, and I don't leave myself at that either. I was there too. So <laughs> everybody, <laughs> was, uh, everybody was. Yep. Yeah. Everybody was a misfit. Yeah, yeah. And there were people on their way up and people on their way down. As hard as it may be to imagine among the ridges we take for granted, when fair racing was in its heyday, it was not unusual at all, as Michael Anderson told me, that the family stable was a significant form of income for the family. Well, you hit, you hit on something too, Michael, that's important, I think, for people to understand that this was, it, it was part of what economically fed the family, right? Yes, right? Yes. I mean, the, the, the racing and, or, yep. or boarding or whatever yes. you're, you're doing, you know, I mean, that, that, and, and that type of thing is much more rare these days. The fair circuit had, shall we say, its fair share of hobbyists as well as full-time trainers. The hobbyists even had some horses who specialized, or at least fit very well, on the fair circuit, as Mike Mazinski tells us. My memory of it, it was a real, um, just a kind of traveling circus, right, of, uh, you know, there was some hobbyists, I guess, and some, you know, more professional trainers, like you said, that wanted to keep a condition for the horse, but keep the horse in form, but uh, it was a... It was a mix of people, right, that were involved in fair racing between the professionals and the well, lobbyists? It was a great mix. It, it was a great mix. There's, there's more stories than you can shake a stick at. It was a great mix of people. Your your, your locals that, that like horses enough where they just keep horses for the fair circuit. Maybe they maybe once in a while they were good enough to run to Suffolk, but they sure did well at the fairs with the little strings. Some of the owners were hobbyists, too. Remember, there was not much in the way of legalized gambling then, so horse racing was one of the main ways to satisfy that itch. And, and your stepfather was more than a hobbyist, let's face it. Oh, he, yeah. He had, he, you know. He was, but there were a lot of hobbyists, too, yes, right, at the, yeah. in the fair And circuit, he had, so, like, yeah. owners that were hobbyists. This was their, you know, they, they, they don't, they buy cheap horses because they, one was a used uh, a car salesman or whatever, one owner, and, yeah. and another owner is a bar owner, and, you know, they'd buy to fit in with their, I want to be a horse owner and yeah, I want to race sure. horses. And, and I want it's to be in the winter circle. Yeah. Everybody wants and to this, be in the winter circle. And this circle. was before all the legal gambling, so that was the only place you could go to gamble, besides the dog tracks or the trotters. So it was an interesting world. 
Michael Anderson's story about how his family got involved in fair racing seems very typical for the circuit. And his stepfather seems like one of those people whose memory, while lost to the wider public, still lingers fondly with those who knew him. In 19, around 1960, when my mother married my stepfather, and he introduced us, my sister and I, to horses. But my grandmother was an avid horsewoman. My mother was a, grew up with horses with my grandmother mm-hmm. on farms. But my stepfather loved racing, and he partnered together with a bar owner in Southbury, Connecticut. Okay. And they bought a few horses, and then they would do the circuit of Green Mountain and mm-hmm. then Marshfield, Weymouth. I think it was Great Barrington and Northampton. I think that's the order that the okay. fairs went in. In the summer of 67, the summer of love, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was reaching that age. Yeah. And uh, we went up to, we started at Green Mountain Park with the uh, meet there. Mm-hmm. And I walked the horses, I cl- mucked stalls, and that's oh, what wow. I did. Yeah. And that was my job. And my stepfather was a trainer. He had the horses. And he would hold court in the track kitchen. <laughs> he was once voted most popular trainer on, the tr- on one track. I oh, can't really? remember, <laughs> remember which. He's been leading trainer a couple of times at the fairs. Okay. All right. But, and what uh, was his name? Mike? William Hool. William O. Hool, H O U L E. Okay, all right. And senior, my brother's junior. And he was just so much fun to be around. He was probably one of the funniest storytellers you'd ever meet. Uh, We always wanted to do something like this to get him to sit down and talk about some of the stories on a racetrack because he was a a big protector of women. Mm -hmm. Okay. At Green Mountain Park, during that meet we were there, there was one guy that he was fairly big, and he liked to pick on jockeys. And we had one jockey that rode for us. His Mm -hmm. name was Jose Pelez, and uh, he's no longer with us. But uh, this guy wanted to beat him up. And there was a little restaurant outside of the uh, Green Mountain race track. Mm -hmm. It was a racetrack-oriented restaurant. And we were in there after after the night racing, and this guy tried to pick a fight with Joe Pelez and my stepfather just stepped right in and says, no, you want to come for me? And my stepfather, big Irish, okay. half Irish, <laughs> half French Canadian. And, uh, but if somebody abused a woman on the racetrack, he wouldn't allow that. He, um, him. he wouldn't mm-hmm. allow abuse of horses. I think one thing that makes it feel authentic, at least to me, was the way the members of the community would look after each other. Even if it wasn't completely on the up and up, Marquis of Queensbury style. Well, there was, you know, obviously that degree of larceny involved. I always had the impression, though, that in some cases it was um, members of the community kind of looking for each, looking out for each other, right? So-and-so needs uh, traveling money or, you know, needs to feed the family or whatever, right? I mean, I, I always had the impression some of that was going on, too. Well, I mean, I, mean, I guess that's another way of putting it. Remember, most of the guys, first of all, the purses were terrible. Right. And most of the jockeys there were... You know, jockeys who were glorified exercise riders at, at Rockingham and Southern Downs, they might win three or four races a year. And the handles at these places were remarkably good. Yes, they were. Uh, I believe that Northampton, uh, and this is just on-track business, of course there's no simulcasting in those days, um, Northampton, I believe, one time in its history, right around that period, actually had a million-dollar handle. So this was the only chance for these guys really to make any money throughout the year. They're not going to make any money riding 101 shot a week at Suffolk Downs um, or, or galloping four horses in the morning. I'm not saying it's right, 
But yeah, there is something to that as a community. Like, look, you know, we've got, you know, between the three fairs, what do they raise, six, seven weeks, something like that. We've got six, seven weeks to actually, you know, put some food on the table and make some money. Well, we're not going to do it when the, when the purse is $1,200 and we win. You know, we're going to do it by fixing races. Michael Anderson echoed that sentiment of the fair racing community looking out for each other, just like a family. A nomadic troop, but a family nonetheless. It was like a family. There were a lot of people there that, uh, I I mean, I remember people, my stepfather, his friends and everybody, they were all just great down-to-earth people on the the track. And uh, and very diverse. Mm -hmm. Every make and model of person you want to meet was on the track. And it, it 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 was a great place. What but in some, way, in some ways, interestingly enough, really maybe diverse in terms of, I don't know, skin color or whatever, but in, in, in many ways, all kind of the same, just hungry people that loved horses and, right. and, and, and loved this way of life, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, we loved it, you know. At, yeah. at the time when I was growing up, I was a little resentful because we never lived in one place. We were always moving, mm-hmm. always. And yeah. it was a nomadic yeah. life. Yeah. And uh but there were so many places we got to see. There was always something to do around the tracks. You know, we'd get through in the morning and we'd go swimming at the beach or we'd mm-hmm. go do something. Even in, when we were in Marshfield, we had a house that was like a mile from the beach. And it was, it was like a rocky kind of beach, but yes, it was just it fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. And yeah. we'd go down there. I can remember trying to get so tan and everything. <laughs> and, uh, well, between working outside with the horses and being at the yeah. beach, I bet you had a pretty good tan all Oh, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And, and it was great. Yeah. We, we were in uh, Marshfield. Yeah, and my mother and my great-grandmother went out. And for them to get a treat, they went out and bought a lobster. Okay. And they had it in a bag. And I, what's in the bag? Don't stick your hand in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's so. So you but, would you would rent a house in each like fair town, yes, right? So you yeah. said like, like Marshfield and Weymouth are not actually that far separate. But Although we, back in the day, then actually that was a much longer drive than it would be today now because the cars weren't as fast, there weren't as many roads, and so I, I can see where you'd you'd rent a house in, in at Weymouth after going to Marshfield, yep. and then then you'd move out west to yep, Great, Great Barrington and and Northampton. There was a uh, trailer park right next to Green Mountain Park. You could actually walk from the trailer park to the track. Okay. And we stayed, we rented a trailer there when we were there. And then when we went to Marshfield, we, you know, everybody's got all these different connections. Right, so right. You, yep. It's not hard to find anything. Yeah. You can ask everybody and everybody's always helpful. It's not going to be a great revelation to say that it was a hard scrabble existence. For someone like Bill Finley, who volunteered his way into the fair circuit, and for many others, you had to get inventive about how you kept your personal ship afloat on the circuit. But my first ever job in horse racing, of any kind where I received a paycheck was at the Great Barrington Fair in 1983. And the way that came about was um, when I was a a senior at Tufts, uh, I was looking to get involved in horse racing and thought that I would like to go into the management end of the sport. Um, I had no background in writing. I never took a journalism course at oh, wow. school newspaper. I didn't have any family in horse racing. Um, I, I didn't want to be a trainer or anything like that. So I started sending letters around on various racetracks, and really didn't get anywhere. And so at the time, I was um, doing an internship for Suffolk Downs. And uh, I remember I was up in the press box, and there was a fellow that worked for the racing forum, and he had a kind of heated conversation and sort of slammed the phone down. And I, I, I said, his name was Mark, and I said, Mark, what was that all about? He says, damn it, they're sending me to the fair. 
I says, huh? Mm. Um, he didn't want to go because he lived in Boston, and the last thing he wanted to do was pick up and move all the way for the week and a half uh, or so, whatever it was, over to Great Barrington. So he was quite upset. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. You don't want to go pick up the phone and say, I, I found a guy here. He's willing to do it. <laughs> and uh, that was it. That's how I all got started. Um, the, the, the pay was so bad. And they didn't pay your expenses. That I was literally working for negative money. I was going to ask. My expenses okay. did, did not cover whatever the paycheck was. But that's how I got started. Uh, my very first job in horse racing was in 1983 at Great Barrington Fair. And I was what was called the call taker, which was the person who took down the information from the mm. chart caller, just wrote it down on a piece of pad and paper, and then it became the charge. And uh, I worked all the fairs that year. And uh, that was the only time I worked there professionally. But um, again, you know, my sort of odd fascination with with almost like, you know, people that go to the circus to see the, the freak shows. Um, <laughs> I, I, I loved it, and uh, uh, I always, uh, I, I, I will always remember that. So, what was that? What was that phone call home to um, mom and dad? Like, mom and dad, I, I got a job, but I, I need money. I guess was was that what the call you had to make? Or? <laughs> well, thank goodness you could get, anybody could get an American Express card back in those days. So, I found a Chinese restaurant that did take American Express, mm-hmm. and um, I, <laughs> I basically subsided on Chinese food. Um, I did have enough money to probably buy a few hot dogs and, and uh, you know, cotton candy at the fair itself. But um, it's not that I wasn't making, um, it's not that I wasn't getting a paycheck in, but at the end of the day, my, my expenses were more off. And needless to say, the racing department was exceedingly cheap, especially back in that day. And, um, you know, now if, 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 uh, if, if I were living in Great Barrington, that would have been fine. But if I got to sleep somewhere, and even back in the 80s, a hotel room would cost you $40, $50 sure. a night. Mm. So that's $350 a week. And then, trust me, I wasn't making $350 <laughs> a week. So I hope to cash an occasional bet. And if I didn't, um, uh, I'd either go hungry or uh, thank goodness for the Chinese restaurant that took my American Express card. One element that definitely added to the fun of racing at the fair was that it was at a fair. Amid the rides, the games, the food, and the hoopla, you could go over and watch a race. It's how many of us got started, after all. And, you know, you made a good point, too, about, the, you know, the whole fair atmosphere. I mean, my kids, I used to, by the time my kids were young, Marshfield was really the only fair that was running in eastern Massachusetts. And we'd take them down to the fair, and you could wander over between rides and, you know, watch a race with the kids. And and I would imagine, you know, that's the way a lot of us got started. I mean, I know that's the way I got started, with my older brother taking me down to the Weymouth Fair, right? But... You know, you were at the fair, you could wander over, the kids could see what was happening. It was fun for kids to be out at the fair who were part of that community also, but well, uh, let's just say ignorance is bliss. At the fairs for my sister and I as kids, you know, we were with the horses, you know, with the drab, clean muck in the stalls every day, why, 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 and then you could get into the fair through the backstretch. Right, right, And you right. didn't really have to pay yep. to get in. Yep. And as long as my mother gave us a couple of dollars to go spend on a ride oh, or sure cotton the... candy or anything else, <laughs> but that, that was, 
just, just uh, I don't know if it'll make you feel any better, but one of the jobs I used to have when the Weymouth Fair came to town was, you know, they, like I, I think I told you, they'd give us like 50 cents a day. We used to help put some of the rides together. Now yeah. think about that. You were on a ride that like a 12-year-old kid put together. You thought you were risking your life with the horses. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's hard to get me on any kind of ride. I, get, I do not like heights. I do not like... <laughs> I just gave you another reason to not like yeah. them. I actually do. There certainly was a family environment at the fairs. It expressed itself in some interesting ways. The year before, there happened to be a lot of track records set by a certain jock whose other half was the timer. <laughs> so, like, I, it was, like, ridiculous. That mm. was impossible for that horse to run that fast. The fair circuit launched Bill Finley's journalism career. It shouldn't be overlooked that it launched other careers as well. One anecdote to that, uh, Tim Ritzfeld. Oh, sure. Went on to be one of the, the, the major executives in, in horse racing working for the Stronach Group. Was the, um, that was the first place that he ever rode and as a jockey. And at that very same meet, so I was telling him, well, Timmy, you and I broke in together at Great Barrington in 1983. <laughs> It's perhaps hard to understand the attraction of the fairs, why they resonate so strongly to this day, at least maybe as far as I've explained. I'm going to let Michael Anderson describe. I miss it. I, I miss, I miss the, the fun of the fairs, you know, it was, but it was a different world. It was, it was a different world. And, and that's one of the things that I wanted to get to in this podcast. Too. Yeah. Just a the different time. Uh, you know, people can't imagine, I think, these days, an itinerant kind of traveling circus right. going from one track for two, week, two weeks at a time, basically, right? right? Yeah, you know, because um, the meets weren't that long. Right, right, right. Um, Green Mountain was almost the whole summer, but mm-hmm. after that, you know, your, your fairs were just, as long as the fair lasted, that's as long as you were racing horses. Yeah. And uh, once the fair closed down for however long it was open... So, Mike, what's your, what's your favorite fair racing memory, would you, would, would you say, of being that, that circuit up here in New England? Oh, just going to the fairs after yeah. working with the horses. Yeah. You know, getting cotton candy or, yeah. Yeah. or having enough money to, to play with the machines yeah. and, and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And then you go back, and then I loved taking the horses to the paddock. Because mm-hmm. you were right in front of the crowd, it was like you were on stage. Okay. So you're leading yeah. the horse into the paddock, and you lead him there, and then mm. you throw the jockey up on there. Yeah, and that and that was really my one of my favorite, you know, yeah. being yeah. down there and being in the winter circle, mm-hmm. uh, being with with the horses. I loved being around all the people, yep. but being at the track, I loved going to the to the paddock, going to the you know, taking them out to the track. Runyonesque is an adjective we often use to describe the horse player typified in Damon Runyon classics like Guys and Dolls. The fair racing circuit had its own share of Guys and Dolls who perhaps would have starred in a county fair version of that classic. Michael Blowen, for instance, got his education in racing at Figueroa University. Never heard of it? Well, let's just say there was no official cap and gown ceremony at Figueroa University. It was a lifetime of learning. How did you get started on the, on the fair circuit, Michael? I went to work for Carlos because I thought if I learned something about the horses, I could become a better handicapper. Okay. And, uh, and so I went to work for Carlos. I never got paid, but it was a better education than I got in graduate school or any other place. It was a wonderful... Uh, I learned a lot going to Figueroa University, <laughs> or as we officially called it, FU. <laughs> <laughs> old FU. You were alumni of old FU then. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we even had t-shirts made that said Figueroa University on it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> 
In a universe filled with colorful characters, there was none more so than the dean of Figueroa University himself, Carlos Figueroa. He was a, he was a really uh, unique individual, right? I mean, he was very, very debonair, uh, first of all. Um, uh, he, he had quite an air about him, didn't he? Yes, he did. I mean, his, Carlos's great redeeming quality was his sense of humor. I mean, he was very, very funny. We brought a, off of a, in, I think it was in 1999, was it 97? I think it was 97. In 97, 1997, we brought, uh, Carlos got a two-year-old in summer attraction. And they should never give a two-year-old to Carlos. Carlos was like one of those guys used to buy old classy cars cheap, fix them up, get a few thousand miles out of them, and then get rid of them. And that's what he did. He got these old classy climbing horses and uh, and he got some wins into them and then, then got another one. And that's how he kept in business. But he got this two-year-old summer attraction. Summer attraction second start, which was about a month after Silvertron won the Derby. Uh, he he won a two furlong maiden special weight at Suffolk and beat three other horses. And <laughs> they started at the top of the stretch and went to the finish line. And uh, so off of that race, Carlos, in his infinite wisdom, decides that he's going to run him in the Sanford Stakes at Saratoga which is just completely insane. A big step up, yeah. Let's just not yeah, call it that. Completely insane. Yeah. Now, yeah. So we, we bring the poor little horse up there for the for the Sanford, and the two things I remember so vividly are, before the race, we're in the paddock, and uh, they have a, uh, all the newspaper guys and TV guys are there. And a newspaper guy comes up to Carlos and goes, Mr. Figueroa, should I bet your horse some attraction? And Carlos leans back and he goes, how bad do you want to go to Honolulu? <laughs> 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 but my favorite one was, uh, now you got to picture this. He's got his white pants on. He's got a Hawaiian shirt. He's got a, a Panama hat. He's, he's duded up his, uh, his little mustache there with some eyebrow pencil. I mean, you really look the part. And, um, guy from the TV station comes up and goes, uh, Oh, Mr. Figueroa. How are you going to feel if your horse summer attraction wins the Sanford Stakes? And Carlos leans back and goes, "If my horse summer attraction wins the Sanford Stakes, they're going to have to rename it the Sanford and Son." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Maybe what resonates so strongly to this day about those bygone days are the personalities that seem out of place in today's modern age, like Carlos Figueroa or colorful characters like the jockey Herbie Hinojosa and others whom Michael Blowen remembered. I don't know if you remember a jockey named Herbie Hinojosa. I don't. Herbie, I go ahead. Herbie was a leading jockey, I think, in the country in 1960 and 1961. And he ended up messing up everything and ended up at the fairs. And one day, racing was over, and I'm sitting at a picnic table, and Herbie comes and sits down, and he had duct tape wrapped around his boot. And uh, I started talking to him, and Herbie talked about how he had this used to have this big house in Miami with music in every room, and uh, and everything else. And now he had, you know, he just cooked everything up. I said, Herbie, what's the deal with your with your boot? You need new boots or what? He goes, No. He said, I broke my a leg. Oh my gosh. I said, I said, you broke your leg and you put it together with duct tape. He goes, Yeah. He wow. Goes, oh, by the way, he says, uh, I have a question. He says. 
do you think, who has more money, Kmart or Walmart? I said, I don't know. What difference does it make? And he says, well, I want to find out where I fell. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) That was Herbie. There was another jockey, a big tall guy named Jerry Jerry Knowles. His his name is Jerry Blue Horse Knowles. And he was a horse dentist. And I think there was an Indian tribe in in North Carolina that named him Blue Horse. He got an Indian name for doing something with their horses or he did some service and they, they made him an honorary Indian. And he took it so seriously. I mean, here's how serious he took it. He built a teepee. And he used to when they went when he went to the fairs to race, he put the teepee by the river <laughs> and uh and he lived in the freaking teepee. <laughs> Wow. Wow. And one night, as I said, it's a pretty wild crew there. There was a restaurant. I think it was in, I think it was in Great Barrington, but I'm not sure. And uh, he, he had a little too much to drink, and he drove his truck through the outside wall of the restaurant. Oh, my gosh. And uh, immediately ditched the truck and headed for the Berkshires. And they looked for him for three days. They couldn't find him. And I saw him about two weeks later uh, when he was trying to gather up his stuff without being apprehended. I said, Jerry, what's going on? They said, they were looking for you for three days. They had all these police out there. And they said, how'd you you not get caught? And he goes, I'm an Indian. I know the hills. It's easy to put people into siloed categories that we create in our minds, but it's worth making the effort to remember that people, any person really, are much more complex and deeper than the shallow categorizations in which we seek to place them. Well, he was, I, I mean, he's he, he, well known for a sense of humor, and, and, and you're right, he, he was, was a claiming trainer through and through. He actually had a, a, a pretty interesting life outside of the track, too. One of the things I noticed was that while he and his wife didn't have any children, I think they fostered a number of children, correct? His wife, Pearl, she's still alive. Uh, she's a marvelous woman. I remember one time at Rockingham Park at Thanksgiving, she went and bought 35 turkeys, cooked 35 turkeys for everybody that was at the track at Rockingham for Thanksgiving. Wow. They went to the bar and had this huge Thanksgiving dinner all because of her. She was unbelievable. Behind the scenes, there were different levels of mixing between the various fair elements. According to Mike Mazinski, there was a bit of a West Side story to the whole thing, but there were also those who appreciated the good tip. Well, a lot of counties, you know, it was like a big rivalry. They, wanted, they always wanted to fight, your basic county. Okay. Now, your hot dog, your hot dog stands, your sausage stand. Yeah, there was a... Uh, they, they like to a little hot tip and give you a mid-break on something to eat, for sure. <laughs> okay. And the tips came from anywhere. I remember one jockey I used to like to pull around a little bit. Good guy. Taught me a lot about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he asked me one day, go bet this 300 to show I'm on this horse. <laughs> I'm like, huh, okay. Well, it was one of those deals where there were some wise guys around doing some things with jockeys. And he took his 300 and not be first or second. He just bet it to show. 
Oh man! Wow. The horse paid like four eighty. The show. Because nobody knows. No, nobody. Everybody's always dead. Nobody. Nobody thought of going to the show pool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, what a good lesson! What a good lesson that was. Race organizers at the fairs were not afraid to be a little inventive and have some fun with the races themselves. Well, the, the other thing I think that I, I liked about fair racing, um, and I, I think a lot of people did, was that, like at, at Marshfield, I know they tried to do some unique things to just make it fun for people. Like, I believe it was at Marshfield they used to run the, the Grey Cup, right, which which was, you know, off gray horses, right? <laughs> um, and I believe they also had a race called the Marshfield Marathon, which, you know, that was, what, a half-mile bullring, right? And I believe that the horses went five times under the wire in the Marshfield Marathon was the was the rule. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, there were things like that. I believe they also had a race um, on the last day of the fairs for, for trainers that had not won a race at the entire, during the entire fair meet. And let's not forget, some of the characters at the fair were the horses themselves. Many of the horses who ran at the fairs were hardy types. Or maybe the fairs just hardened them up. Golden Arrow won a race on the fair circuit at age 17 and ran as an 18-year-old at Great Barrington. One wagering wag was heard to say, I bet on that horse 10 years ago. And perhaps no horse proved hardier than the one who ran representing Figueroa University. So back to Carlos, I know one of the things he was <laughs> famous for was the great uh, Shannon's Hope, right? Who, uh, I believe... The Immortal. Yeah, the Immortal. <laughs> I, if I'm remembering correctly, Michael, he, that horse, Shannon's Hope, she, I guess, won, what, five races in eight days on three different tracks? Is that right? I think that's right. I'm not sure whether it was at three different tracks, but it was five for eight. And the ASPCA called called him in, and they were going to prosecute him for animal abuse. And uh, I remember this. Carlos said to him, well, wait a second. This horse in a stall all day. I take him out. He runs around three times around the track. He comes back in and he gets to sleep all afternoon. I wish I had a disease. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then he said, you know, you have this guy. He, he goes 20 miles over the bramble and the rock fences and cuts himself off. He's a mess. And, and you put up a statue to Paul Revere and you're trying to put me in jail. <laughs> well, that was pretty hard to argue with that one, I would say, then, right? <laughs> The old saying went, all's fair at the fairs. I suppose that's true, depending on which side you stood. For instance, Bill Finley tells us handicapping was not what one traditionally thinks of when using that term. You know, I probably shouldn't say this because, you know, who advocates fixed racing? I mean, that's, that's crazy. But that was part of the charm of the fairs. And I, I know a lot of your listeners won't understand that, but I, I think people that were there will. You didn't necessarily handicap who you thought the best horse was in. You tried to figure out who who was in on the fit. <laughs> and one of, there, were, there were ways to do that, and one of which was just to follow the tote board. I mean, you would see off horses that, that should have been 12 to 1 that would be 6 to 5. And, you know, you weren't always right, but, but that's the, the main way that you handicapped. And I'll, I'll never forget... Uh, one feeling uh, that, that I had or one experience I had, this only happened one time. I wish it would have happened dozens of times, but I believe this one was at Northampton, and there was no, even at, at, at Marshfield and um, 
Craig Barrington, and I'm probably getting their different fares mixed up, I'm not sure. We actually had very small press boxes, which were nothing more than a table for you to sit on and, and a typewriter mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But at, at, at this track, um, uh, and again, I believe it was Northampton, but, but excuse me if I'm wrong, there were only the three men when I was working. Um, they did not have a press box, so they put us um, at a table uh, back behind where the mutual clerks were. And I've never seen this before, and I've never seen this since. There was a little machine that showed how many tickets were sold on various, what I call them perfectas in New England in those mm-hmm. days, various perfected combinations in $2 increments. Now, they did not show the exact slash perfected prices to the public. They were not, they were not made available. So I'm looking up on this board, and there's about a minute to post, a minute to post, and there's two six seven to one shots, and three times more tickets have been sold on the box of these these two horses than, than any other combination. And I'm not exaggerating. And it oh might my have been gosh. Ten times more. So I hightailed it out of there, bet everything in my pocket on, on the box of these two horses to finish first and second. And lo and behold, yes, they finished first and second. <laughs> um, yes, the exactor should have paid about $93. It came in and paid about 14 bucks. <laughs> If you paid attention to those quote-unquote handicapping angles, you could actually do quite well for yourself as the connections of one horse, and Bill Finley clearly did. Uh, I'll give you a, a, another story. There was a um, horse that, that shipped in from the Meadowlands that had, uh, had run an $8,000 claiming race the, um, the, in its last start. It, was, it had been off about a year or so. But an $8,000 claimer at the fairs might have well, well have been like the, mm. a, a horse that ran in the Kentucky Derby. One to nine, yeah. <laughs> and once again, the horse was like something ridiculous, like eight to one on, on the tow board. This horse comes down the stretch, and I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, famous Rodney Dangerfield movie uh, where um, the, the driver of a race yeah, horse yeah, like, yeah. You know, kicks his foot out and, and does everything Drags possible. It. Yeah. This jockey stood up in the in the saddle. He he pulled that horse back so hard. He did everything in his power. I mean, he was yanking that horse so hard, and he did it. He pulled it off. The horse ran third or fourth or something like that. And I did mark him down. He showed up at the entries like ten days later at Suffolk County to want to pay twenty six dollars. And you know, back then I, I got twenty dollars on the horse of Suffolk, which is about as big a bet as I would ever yeah. pay. But um, <laughs> obviously, the intention was not to win that day at whatever fair it was. Uh, they were getting ready to put one over at Suffolk, which uh, um, you know you you could have uh, you get a lot bigger price, and, 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 and yeah. the handle would have been bigger. So.
Michael Anderson reminded us that that kind of chicanery didn't exist just at the fairs, but also that if you looked out for yourself, you could use a race at the fair to still turn a lemon into lemonade. Having moved down south to the Maryland circuit, he and his stepfather went north having found the right condition for a horse of theirs that was ready. Then they ended up having to go a little further north. In the summer of 1972, I got out of high school, and it was my junior year going into my senior year, and my mother said, your stepfather's taking two horses up to Pocono Downs. You want to go? And I said, yeah, we'll, we'll go. So we left Laurel. We had a station wagon. We had the horse trailer with two horses, and we headed up to Pocono Downs. Now, Pocono Downs, at this time, it was just, all it had was coal dust in the air. Oh, wow. It was just dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we're there, and you could never get clean. So it was just a horrible... Must be uh, tough stuff. on the horses, I would it, think, it, too. It was. Yeah. So we had one horse that we, we knew we had trained him. He's ready to win. And we had the perfect race conditions and we entered him in. So we uh, get the horse ready. We put him in the stall. We, we, we got him in the paddock. When the jockey comes down... And my stepfather takes him to the back of the paddock and, you know, behind the horse, tells him how he wants to run the race. And the jockey says, uh, you're not, your horse isn't going to win. He says, by the way, can I borrow $20 to bet on the horse that will win? <laughs> oh my God. And, and then he gave my stepfather the tip on what horse was supposed to win oh my so he could get a little piece of the action, yeah, you know, yeah. because At he, least he was being very fair, sharing, well, right? He got yeah, yeah. so pissed off. Oh, I I don't blame we him. Lo- we, we cooled him down after the race, yep. loaded him into the trailer, and we get to the main gate. We're leaving, and the, and the guard says, where are you going? He said, I got to have an emergency at home. And we got out the gate. Instead of heading left south, we went right north. And I said, Dad, you said we had an emergency at home. He says, I just tell him that because it's bad etiquette to leave a meet, leave in the middle of a meet. And we left there. We went up to Northampton. Go up and yeah, get, get the win. <laughs> yeah. Did the horse that was supposed to win the race at Pocono win it? Did, yes, okay, he did. He did. All yeah. right, okay. That type of thing was not at all unusual, although the motives could be different. Mike Mazinski saw many trainers who used the fair circuit to maintain the horse's training, to retain a place in a future condition book, and to obtain a big score later. I know, I know, but I, I know a lot of trainers from Green Mountain just went there to be fit. You know, you don't want to go okay. condition for for short money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep the horse just just keep the horse in running condition, basically. Yep, and then you know, if you're second or third, you get a trainer's award, a little purse money, no harm, no foul. Uh, and you keep the condition now. Okay, I see what you're saying. Oh, fascinating. Okay, okay. In fact, Mike learned that angle pretty quickly once he obtained his trainer's license in Massachusetts. And so I'm gonna go to Northampton and take the trainer's test. So I I passed my little trainer's test and used. Instead of him use Great Barrington to run my first horse as a licensed trainer. And, of course, I'm not going to lose a condition. I knew that much already. Mm-hmm. And I just said to Jack, you know, second or third would be great. And he, he, was, he was a closer route horse, not very good on at the fairs. But we got we got an easy third, just perfect. I got my first trainer's award, like 10 bucks, and it was a thrill. The fair handles were surprisingly, at least to me, large. But even with the handle, there were times when fair racing played a little fast and loose if they were going to retain the benefits their agricultural designation conferred. All of them, I believe, had to had to really go off the post and shut people out so the handle wouldn't go over a million dollars. 
because if the handle went over a million dollars, they would lose their agricultural status. Oh, interesting. Which is part of the, the which is part of the break on the on the handle. They get a big take out of the handle for oh, agriculture. Okay. Okay. Oh my God! Great Barrington one day was jeez. They were near a million dollars, but they boy how they got the how they didn't make it bad. It was crazy. Anyways, it was just insane. So what would they do? Would they close the windows like before post time? Uh... No, but they 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 would call the stewards and say, "Listen, guys, we need an early light." When the red light would come on, and the oh, horses would turn okay. to the gate. Oh wow! As soon as the first horse was loading in the gate, they'd hit the close button. On they the shut window. it down. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, early 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 enough to get shut out. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's just the way it had to be. You know, the, you know, the stewards, everybody was on board with it. They, okay, they okay. You know, if they lose their agricultural status, the stewards don't have that job either. Right, and and you get a, you said you they got a bigger takeout on the agricultural status, basically. Well, so. there was there was a, there was a deal they made with the fair. You know, the agricultural status was a whole bunch of tax breaks and stuff. As Mike Mazinski tells us, however, sometimes those folks got a little too cute for their own good. I remember one trainer in my early Marshfield days, a couple trainers, really, that piled around together through the fairs and goofed off cash and bets. They ran a maiden special way to Marshfield, open day, and the horse absolutely nowhere. I mean, you can watch the jockey just, you know, just... <laughs> Putting the brakes never on. Moved, never, come out last and never moved his hand. Yeah. <laughs> Following, geez, it wasn't long. Marshfield was still open, mm-hmm. and this horse is and this horse is in at Saratoga with Robin Smith up, the maiden claiming something, and he just parks and pays like twenty something dollars. And then they, and then I remember the jock telling me, he says, "Man, what good guys they are." I said, "Why?" I said, "Man, he just sent me a check for four grand." I said, "Nice, just for that one ride." You know, it's uh, something you can ask. Back in the day, you could just ask your jock to do that. And yeah, okay. They never expected anything. They clearly unloaded on the horse, actually. I mean, for him to pay 20 bucks coming out of Marshfield, actually, they clearly they, they fired it in on him. Of course, not all of it was so humorous as Mike Mazinski related to us regarding an incident at the Great Barrington Fair. I was with a trainer named Jimmy Pace at the time. I was like Jimmy Pace's eyes and ears. Okay. And he had sent a horse up to Great Barrington that John Rigatieri had given him. Oh, sure, yeah. Horse named Bronze Dancer. Okay. Nice old route, nice old route horse. And John, John had told Jimmy, you know, you can probably win going six and a half with this horse. You know, it's a great Barrington. So Jimmy sent him up. This horse is in, I think, the fifth race perfecta. And I'm hearing rumors that something's going on in the race. And so I asked the jock, I said, you know, what's going on in the race? Nobody's talked to me. I said, all right, all right. So, okay, I guess this horse got me on the lead to boot. So he went off twenty-five to one. Wow! And I, I you know, I did I did manage to bet some. You know, now you know, I always do with the fairs. You know, everybody did. And after the race, jocks are checking in, and one of the stewards calls one of the jocks and calls her up the stairs. She says, she says, what do you want? She goes, didn't that horse bother you? And she says, no, I didn't get bothered at all. <laughs> and he said, get up here. Oh, boy. Whoa. Now, there were two house stewards and one state steward. And um, the state steward was a harness transplant, great guy. But come the outcome, they took this horse down and placed him fourth. Oh. They put the second horse up first. Yep. And then they took the fourth horse and put him by the third horse into second. 
Well, and let me guess I'm what like, their tickets read. Uh, I'm like, I'm standing on the steps. I'm like, man, you guys can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was told, get down those stairs. Get out of here. It's an old saying, but a true one. The only constant is change. Times change. Places change. People and mores change. The Northampton Fair was the last survivor of the fair circuit. Northampton held its last horse race on September 11, 2005. Mike Mazinski was at the Northampton Fair long enough to see the horse whose picture you will see in the dictionary if you look up the word seconditis, the infamous Zippy Chippy. Oh, man, ESPN was following everything. I, you know, my, my jock, I had Howard Lance's book, and he just, the last time I was really thought he had a chance to win. They, you know, they, I, they, like, they couldn't get Willie, and, I, and they asked for Howie, and I had him, too. Yeah, I was around Zippy Chippy. They had ESPN following. They had ESPN following them that year. <laughs> what, what what was it with it? Because I know there's some horses that just, you know, they don't like to pass other horses. Was that Zippy's case, or was he just uh, too too nice to want to, you know, what what was his deal? Do you think? No, Zip, Zippy 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 made the lead. He led all the way up at the last jump. He just okay. He just he just waited. He just stick his toes in and wait for company when he turned for home. Okay, he was in front. <laughs> Or he'd never go by the last horse for some reason. Okay. Either way, either way, it was just, it was almost like he was, you know, he knew he was a star and was doing it on purpose. <laughs> Michael Blowen told me, though, that not all of Zippy's seconditis was his own fault. Felix uh, Montserrat had him, and uh, Felix was an interesting character. And, and when, after um, Zippy had lost 92 races, I started talking to Felix about retiring the horse. And one day, and again, I'm sorry, I can't remember. It was Great Barrington or the Three Three County Fair. I can't remember. But in any case, Zippy Trippy finished second, and he'd been obviously interfered with by the winner. Okay. I mean, the winner practically put him over the rail. Yeah. And so the stewards flashed the inquiry sign, and Felix is going absolutely nuts. And you know. The old days, those steward stands there were like guard towers in some German POW movie, right? <laughs> and uh, they had a ladder that went up to the top, yeah. and uh, and that was their viewing stand. So all of a sudden, here's Felix. I've never seen this before or since. Here's the trainer of the horse who finished second, climbing, climbing the, ladder. the ladder up to the steward stand, begging him not to change. You can't change it. He, he can't win like this. He can't win like this. <laughs> and they didn't change it. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. And speaking of Zippy Chippy, who now resides at Old Friends Farm in Greenfield Center, New York, we can't close this segment out without talking about Carlos Figueroa's Sanford Steak Entrant Summer Attraction. We got this wonderful update from Michael Blowen. Well, I started falling in love with the horses, and I fell in love with this little horse who literally had a nervous breakdown after the race. He totally was destroyed. Oh, oh and he didn't win another race for a year and a half. Um, I left Carlos partially because of this, because I didn't like the way he was handling the horses anymore. I went with another trainer and this, that, and the other. But um, a year and a half later, he still hadn't won another race. He still owes for the non-winners of two life. Mm-hmm. And on Mother's Day, he was running in a $3,500 claim at Finger Lakes. And so I uh, I called the trainer up, that's my trainer up that on, on Saturday, and I said, come on, we're going to get in the car. We're going to drive all night, get the trailer. We're going to go claim this horse. So we went and got him. So we went and claimed him. And he, we gave him a little time off, and then eventually he won three races for us, and then he retired. 
And now he's here with me, and he's still alive, and he's still doing good, and he's here with me in Kentucky. Oh, my gosh. That's a great story. That's a great story. Wow. Wow. But that's all. He raced at the fairs. He won a race at the fairs. Yeah. In fact, in this day and age, we can all look back and say that, as fondly remembered as those fair racing days may have been, there were obviously practices that would never be tolerated today, nor should they be tolerated. But it's, dare I say, fair to ask, would we have as committed a thoroughbred aftercare movement as we do without the fairs? I remember so many great things about the, the fairs, but it wasn't really, it wasn't good for the horses at all. Because, you know, if you couldn't win at the fairs, and even if you did win at the fairs, you really couldn't compete at Suffolk or Rockingham. And, you know, and at the end of the day, that's when I found out that a lot of them were just going to slaughter. Well, you mentioned when I first interviewed you for the very first podcast that we did that the truck would come up to the track every week, right? And I think it was yeah. Car- Carlos who told you that they were going to a riding academy. And- a riding academy in Maine. I said, man, I've been to Maine a bunch of times. There must be 10,000 riding academies. I've never seen one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks to folks like you, I mean, that, that has uh, changed, you know. and, and- Yeah, I know no, it's changed a lot, and it's, you know, this, this Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance is just a spectacular organization. They're doing a great job of accrediting uh, retirement farms and, 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 and farms that, re- that rehab and retrain these horses and, and, uh, and, and, and raising money. They do a really, really good job. Stacy Clark and her old gang over there does a terrific job. It's a, it's a good thing for racing. It's a good thing for the horses. And, you know, Dr. Byers, my veterinarian for all, all, a long time and probably the, one of the greatest vets who ever lived. And it's just an unbelievable uh, de- diagnostic that just could figure out what was going wrong with horses and fix them. It's just unbelievable. Anyway, he told me once, he says, you know, it's a very simple thing. All you have to do is, is everybody involved with the horse, whether it's a veterinarian or a trainer or a jockey or an owner or anybody, if you're about to do something with or to that horse, and you just have to answer one question, is this, is this in the best interest? Mm, of the horse, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it yeah. is, go ahead and do it. And if it's not, don't. Well, those are actually words to live by your whole life, right? Yeah, they are. I hope you've enjoyed this remembrance of the fair racing circuit in Massachusetts. For me, I simply enjoyed reminiscing about those heady summer days as we anticipated the fair coming to town. I don't know that any similar kind of experience exists for children today, which, in my opinion, is very sad. It's important to remember those were different times with, as I said, different mores. But if we're going to remember history, any history, it's important that we remember the good and the bad, the innocent and the guilty, and the dare I say, both the fair and the unfair. It's always tempting to look at the past through rose-colored glasses. I hope that you found this look back at a simpler, more innocent time, even if there were some guilty hacks along the way. In so many ways, those times are long gone, and we won't see their like again. Thanks for listening.